As a child, I remember trying to read a prayer that was on my bedroom wall. And it was a framed cross-stitch, beautifully embroidered with amazing detail. And the prayer read these words. Ein tad, arun oitan a nevoith, sanctaithia de enu delid de dairnes, ganela de wathis megis an a nev. Vethli aradhaia hevid, daru ini hedhu ein bara banadhiol. And so it went on. Now I guess that probably most of you here don't know that prayer. Not in Welsh anyway, but I guess that you will probably know it in English. It's the Lord's Prayer. And that prayer was said every afternoon in my primary school days when we closed for the day. Uh, the last thing we did in school was put our chairs on the desk to make it easier for the cleaner to clean when she came in and then say the Lord's Prayer in the traditional uh, way. And those uh, words in the traditional form have never left me. When I started my, um, uh, my, my pastoral ministry in a city centre church in Cardiff, we used to sing those words, the traditional Lord's Prayer, in um, our evening gospel service. I see that, Tim. Wow. <laughs> you see, some of you who are fairly um, new to faith, um, you'd be interested to know that what we have in the style and the expression of worship that we have today with worship leaders and contemporary musicians, with, uh, contemporary songs rather, and, and very, very talented musicians, is something which is a relatively new expression of worship that the church has enjoyed probably for about 30 or 40 years, even though just before that it was slowly evolving with the so-called charismatic movement. I remember the day well. It was one Sunday in March 1988 when I was pastoring or part of the pastoral team uh, in Cardiff in the city centre church and we introduced drums. 28 years ago. Not forgetting that, uh, you know, it wasn't a brethren assembly and it wasn't uh, a primitive Methodist congregation. It wasn't even the Quakers. This was a city centre Pentecostal church. So styles and expressions of worship have changed massively in that short time. And my guess is, and this isn't a prophetic word or anything, my guess is that over the next while they will continue to change. And maybe in 50 years' time, I probably won't be around then. But in 50 years' time, those who are living then will probably look back to 2016 and say, they used to do what in 2016? You see, each generation has its own you know, sees itself as a, uh, at the cutting edge. You know, in the 18th century, you had uh, Charles Wesley and the great whim, uh, the hymns of the um, Methodist revival. And what he did, he put theology to pub tunes. And it was real cutting edge stuff. And then in the 19th century, you had people like Ira Sankey, who was the songster for the famous uh, evangelist Dwight L. Moody. And again, that was cutting edge in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, you had the Elim chorus book. For those who were old enough, yeah, that wasn't cutting edge. <laughs> Sorry, I'm five minutes into my talk and I've already gone ten miles off tangent. Let's come back to the Lord's Prayer that we used to sing less than 30 years ago. 
we would sing in the evening service. And people of, of my age and older are able to recite the Lord's Prayer in the traditional form. But many do so in a rather thoughtless and autopilot and monochrome and mechanical way, not realizing how amazing and revolutionary and radical and challenging these actual words are. The title of our series, and today is the penultimate study, we'll be finishing our series next week, is entitled, Thy Kingdom Come. And it's taken from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And it isn't only that one line in the prayer which focuses on the kingdom when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I would say that the whole prayer is all about God's kingdom as we will see this morning. The prayer is found in two places in the New Testament, in the Gospels. It's found in Matthew chapter 6 in the so-called Sermon on the Mount or what we called the other week when we had a look at this passage the manifesto of the kingdom. And it's also found in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus gave his disciples uh, this prayer in response to the request from them, when they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, just like John has has taught his disciples. And this prayer in Matthew chapter 6 comes in the middle of a section where Jesus is teaching his followers not to be showy, and not to be ostentatious and not to be flashy in the way that they display their acts of goodness or devotion. And Jesus said, you know, don't try to win the approval of people. (coughs) Rather, try to win God's approval. And Jesus told them when they give to the needy, they should never let their left hand know what their right hand is doing. And don't go around on street corners and shout it from the rooftops, basically. Don't get a trumpet out to declare all that you're doing. But do these things behind the scenes. And don't try to win other people's approval. And don't, when you pray and fast, and when you uh, have private devotions, make sure that they are private. Don't do it in order for other people Um, to think that you're some kind of spiritual giant. The hidden way, the desire to obtain God's approval, not the approval of people, is the kingdom way. So we're going to just have a look at these words from Matthew chapter 6 today. Uh, Put them there up on screen for you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Those are the words that we're going to be looking at this morning. And the title of this talk is The Kingdom's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, this prayer in Matthew's Gospel is noticeably different to that found in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 11. And the two are very similar, but they are different prayers. And I would suggest that we have two very 
we have two different prayers there, although they are similar, which suggests to us that they were never meant to be quoted verbatim, weren't meant to be quoted word for word. But what Jesus was giving here is this as a broad principle of how we are to pray, not necessarily used as a model for us to recite. Jesus was saying essentially that you need to be praying along these lines. And this was a, a skeleton prayer, uh, it, which ticked all the boxes. And you can see that you can't really pray outside of the Lord's Prayer from looking at the words in front of you. Hallowed be your name. Well, what you're doing there, it's all about worship. It's all about praising and ad adoring God for who he is. You are kingdom come. That's a recognition of the lordship of, uh, uh, of, of, of God and his rule in the world, in his, in his church and in our lives. It's also the all-inclusive missionary prayer because it's praying that God's kingdom or God's rule would come in the lives of everyone, which also includes those who are unbelievers. Give us today our daily bread. It's a prayer for provisions. Forgive us our debts, which is a prayer for confession and repentance. And lead us not into temptation, acknowledging our need for the Lord's help in our constant struggle with temptation. There's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer in the traditional form. If you're on your own or if you're with others, that's great. There's no problem with that. We often do that in our life group on a Thursday morning. But the important thing is that whenever we say these words, that we don't just pray them by rote. We actually mean what we pray. We understand what we pray. And hopefully that is something that you will get from this morning's talk. So this is truly a kingdom prayer. It teaches us to pray things which really are central to what Jesus taught on the kingdom of God. So let's have a look at some of these uh, statements. The first thing that Jesus uh, tells us is to direct our prayers to our Father in heaven. And we need to remember that God's kingdom is not some ideology or philosophy or dogma. That God's kingdom is a relationship with our Father in heaven. He is the creator of the universe. He is the kingdom's king. There's a lovely new book going to be released in April. And it's on uh, our Queen's Christian faith to mark her 90th birthday. And it's wonderfully titled this. The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. What a great title for a book. Our Servant Queen. The Servant Queen and the King that She Serves. And the King She Serves is the King of Kings. And the King that She Serves is our King. And we also serve His purposes in a world. Hopefully with the same servant heart that she has. And right at the start of this prayer, we are reminded <coughs> that we are communicating with someone who is likened to a, a loving father. Now, in all probability, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the word that he used would have been Abba, which is very similar to our daddy, obviously without the childish connotations of that word. In other words, God is not some ogre. He's not hide hideously cruel or a less than perfect father that we sometimes read about in the newspapers, but he loves his children sacrificially. He's not just only all-loving, but he is also all-powerful. Our Father, said Jesus, in heaven. He's not only good, but he's great as well. That all authority on earth and heaven belong to him. Father speaks of nearness. 
in heaven. It speaks of his transcendence, of his otherness. And I think it's always good when we pray to remind ourselves of the character and the qualities of God, to fill our minds with the greatness of his love. And that's what we've been doing this morning in our time of worship when we've been singing. It's not the introduction to something else, but that's a vital part of our service, that we are filling our hearts and minds with truths about God as we are singing to him. We're also to remind ourselves that he is our Father. He's not just my Father. And that's wonderful to remind ourselves, isn't it, that we're a part of God's worldwide family, that we're a part of his kingdom here on earth. And you might notice from those words in the Lord's Prayer that there isn't a single me or my or mine in that prayer at all. And you see, the Lord desires that we should uh, not just pray about ourselves, about our needs, about our lives, about our ambitions and about our desires. But we need to remember that we are part of God's family. <coughs> you know, I just wonder if we were allowed to see the heavenly transcript of our prayers for this last month. Assuming, that is, that you've prayed at all in the last month. I wonder if we could see the heavenly transcript of that. Would those prayers be full of words like me and mine and my? Would they be focused almost entirely upon personal needs and upon what's going on in our lives? Or would they be focused perhaps on the Lord, on his glory and his grace and upon other people that we bring to him in prayer as well? as our own personal needs. You see, it's interesting to note here that the, this prayer that we have, the Lord's Prayer, <coughs> the first part of the Lord's Prayer is focused on the Lord before any request is made for ourselves. Look at those words. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and then we get, give us our daily bread. Forgive us. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The New Living Translation says, may your name be kept holy. Now, in first century uh, Israel, if you were living in those times, the name of God was thought of as so holy that no one should ever speak it. That is, except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement when he went and did his sacrifice in the, whole, uh, in the Holy of Holies. And even today, modern day Jews, um, many of them will not mention the name of God by name, Yahweh, but will replace, replace that name by the name Adonai, very often in their times of prayer, or in reading the Torah. And in this petition of God's name being hallowed or kept holy or honoured, Jesus was not teaching for a moment, I believe, that we should never speak the name of God as the Jews believed. But rather what he was saying is that God himself should be honoured everywhere, in the media, in schools, in government, in his church, in society generally. And surely that is the prayer of all the citizens of the kingdom of heaven 
Wouldn't you agree? It's not your prayer, it's my prayer, certainly. That the name of God, that his name should be honoured throughout all of society. (coughs) And when we speak about God's name, (coughs) we need to realise here that we're not referring to a combination of letters, G-O-D. We're not referring to that. (coughs) But whenever God's name is spoken of in Scripture, we're speaking of everything that God is. Um, his character and his activity. It represents everything that God is, not, not just his name, G-O-D. So, what have we got here? Firstly, our first priority as citizens of God's kingdom is with God's name, God's honour and God's glory. It's not about us trying to get our will done on earth, but it's bowing our hearts and our lives to his will, bowing the knee to him. In heaven, his will is always done. In heaven, he rules supreme. And therefore, we are praying that his reign and his rule would increase on earth as it is in heaven, and that everybody will come to bow to his lordship. That's an incredible prayer, don't you think? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, it's always done. My word, for, for that to happen. And for us not to just mouth those words, because we always mouth them and we can recite them so easily, the words just slip off our tongues. But to actually mean that as a prayer. Your will to be done, Lord, and your kingdom to come on earth. What an amazing prayer that is. You know, Jesus did not teach his followers to pray, may we go to heaven from earth, but rather it was may your kingdom come to us on on earth. And yet, for me, and I've spoken to many Christians over many decades, many Christians seem so preoccupied with escaping earth and going to heaven. For them, it seems to be the main thing of what the Christian faith is all about. That this life is just a, a means to get us one day into heaven. It's all about the eternal insurance policy. An escape from this, world, from this world. But you see, the focus of Jesus' prayer was not heaven. It was not, you know, once you die you get to meet Jesus and meet, meet, meet his Father. But the focus of Jesus' prayer was focused on earth and to bring heavenly transformation to this world. In Acts chapter 1, and as we know, Acts is the history of the early church. Um, we've got it starting in the first chapter Jesus is just about to ascend into heaven. Um, uh, Luke, in his first volume, has spoken about the ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection. And now, the second volume that Luke writes uh, is, is Acts. And right at the start of Acts, we've got Jesus with his disciples. And the very last question that his disciples asked Jesus was this. <coughs> Lord, has the time come? For you to free Israel and restore our kingdom. Now that was the very last recorded question that we find in the scriptures that Jesus was asked. And I read that. And I just want to bang their heads together. I really do. In Christian love, of course. But they, did, they still didn't get it. The disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They had witnessed all that Jesus had done. They'd seen amazing things. They'd heard amazing things. They'd gone through the death of Christ. They'd gone through the resurrection of Christ. 
They'd had Jesus with them for 40 days post-resurrection. And they still didn't get it. Because what they're talking about essentially is politics and national freedom. And they were focused totally on what's going to happen to Israel. You see, when God called a people to himself, that call that we can read in, in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, it was the call of Abraham. And from Abraham he would have the nation of Israel as a people to himself. And he gave Abraham a fivefold promise. And these are the words. <coughs> the Lord said, had said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That's one promise. I will bless you and make you famous too and be a blessing to others. Three. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt for. And the fifth promise there is all the families on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Israel was being told here that they would be blessed by God in order for one thing. Have you got it? They would be blessed by God in order that they should be a blessing to others. And that's what the prophet Isaiah also said in Isaiah 51 verse 4 that they would be a light to the nations implying that the Jewish people who have been called to be God's special people would then go and take the message of their God the God who reigns in power and justice and love and truth and they would take that to the nations what did they do? (laughs) they hid their light under a bowl you could say their calling was to be God's light to the world And instead, it seems as if they were only interested in keeping all of the blessings to themselves. They weren't really interested in sharing about God to the Roman oppressors. They weren't really interested in God, uh, in in sharing God to the half-breed Samaritans. In fact, a Jew would pray every day that, God, I thank you that you've not made me like a Gentile dog. Imagine, you're sort of praying that every day. And that's the way that the Jews often thought of anybody who was not a Jew. We saw a few weeks ago that the religious leaders believed that it was just okay to love their friends. And they could hate their enemies as well. (coughs) But what Jesus says, that isn't the kingdom way. Jesus says that my Father has caused the sun to, to shine and the rain to come on both people who are just and unjust. The sun shines and the rain comes on people who are righteous and unrighteous. That God the Father shows no partiality or favoritism or distinction. And you see, as we pray this prayer, we need to remember that God's agenda is for the whole world. Not just for Christians who sit in their churches in holy huddles, singing our songs, praying our prayers, and talking the language of Zion. You see, kingdom people... And if we are truly kingdom people, we should always have an outward focus. Always. You know, kingdom people are passionate about taking the values of God's kingdom to the world at large. We are passionate about making known the king of the kingdom to the world around us. To the least, the lost and the lonely. So God himself is our first priority. And Jesus encourages us to bring also 
our needs before him. Give us our daily bread, which really is a symbol of everything necessary for the preservation of life. And what Jesus teaches us to pray here is to pray for our necessities, not pray for our luxuries. As someone once said, for our needs, not just our greeds. And um, when we pray this, we're acknowledging our ultimate dependence on God who is the one who ultimately supplies our needs. I think there's a, a certain humility about praying this prayer. You know, because as we, we, we pray this prayer, what we're essentially saying is, Lord, what we have is not really down to us. It's not down to us alone. It's not down to our hard work. It's not down to our business acumen or to lucky bricks. But Lord, you are the one who provides. You are our Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And you see, many of these values that we find in this prayer are values which we've studied together a few weeks back when we looked at the Kingdom Manifesto and what it means to be a member of God's Kingdom in this world today. Before Jesus gave this instruction on prayer, he taught about not worrying and not being anxious. Why? Well, he says, you know, your Heavenly Father, he looks after the birds of the air. And he looks after the flowers of the field. And look at them. They don't worry. They don't toil. And therefore, he will provide for your daily needs. And therefore, it was important, said Jesus, for them to get their priorities right. And if they get their priorities right, what are the priorities? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice in this world. And all these other things will be added to you as well. Moving on in this prayer. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. <coughs> John Stott writes, Forgiveness is as indispensable to the life of the soul as food is to the body. Yes, the disciples were not perfect. And we are not perfect. And that's why we need to ask God to forgive us again and again and again and again. And we ask again and again and again, not because God hasn't forgiven us on the last occasion. We need to keep asking because we keep on messing up. Or is that just me? I sense that it's probably not just me. I sense that it's probably all of us. Wonderful grace that gives what I don't deserve, pays me what Christ has earned, then lets me go free. Wonderful grace that gives me the time to change washes away my stains that once covered me. What a great song. We'll sing that afterwards. I don't know if you've been uh, watching the news this week. Um, um, American Republican candidate Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, a few chuckles I've just mentioned his name. <laughs> um, he, he refers to himself as an evangelical Christian and he said that he doesn't regret never asking God for forgiveness. Uh, I've got the actual quote here. Why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? <laughs> Astonishing arrogance from a very stupid and a very, very, very dangerous man. So I guess the Lord's Prayer, and this, this, this phrase obviously doesn't apply to him. Yes, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Forgive us our debts 
as we have forgiven our debtors. You see, citizens of God's kingdom or God's new society, those that he has called to himself, I believe are very, very aware. I am very, very aware of my own fallenness and frailty. And I would say that the greatest boast of any citizen of this new society called God's kingdom, the greatest boast that we have is that we are sinners saved by His grace. And that we are very aware of the enormity of our sin and how that sin was responsible for Christ's death. It's interesting as well to note in this prayer that Jesus linked our forgiveness by God to the way that we forgive other people. Notice there in verses 14 and 15, well, the the verses towards the bottom of, of your screen. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus, for, you, for those of you who know your Bibles quite well, also gave a, a parable in Matthew chapter 18 about a servant who would not forgive his fellow servant even though he had been forgiven far much, far more himself. So, maybe you're asking a question here because it's a question that I've asked uh, over the years. I think I've got a handle on it now. And the question is this. Why did Jesus need to complicate things here? You know, we were right with him up to a point. I'm sure that we appreciate this prayer. That's that's great. We could see sense in everything that he taught us to pray. (coughs) We can even see the need, I think, of asking him continually to forgive us for our sin. But why on earth did Jesus then link our forgiveness by God with the way that we forgive or indeed withhold forgiveness from others. And for many years that troubled me. The answer, I believe, is that God wants us to be free. God wants us to be free. He wants to hinder us of any kind of baggage, things that will get in the way of our relationship with Him, Things that will just get in the way of us being truly citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And he desires that we offload everything that will get in the way of the relationship with him. And besides, I would say that if someone is holding another person in a prison of unforgiveness, then it indicates to me that that person has not even begun to understand what God's grace is all about in the first place. And what it costs God to forgive us. You see, we need to remember that Jesus here is giving this prayer. He is speaking to his disciples. People who are God's people. People who are part of the kingdom. But nevertheless, they, just like us, are imperfect. And they were people who sinned daily. They were people who needed to be forgiven daily. And when we sin doesn't call into question our salvation or our eternal destiny but for anyone who sins in whichever way it puts us out of fellowship with God it creates a barrier a wall between us and God 
That sin gets in the way, it mars, it spoils, it tarnishes the beauty of God's presence in our lives. So if we are unforgiving, not only affects our relationship with God. If we're unforgiving, it rela- it, or, or rather the other way around, not only uh, mars our relationship with other people, but also mars our relationship with God. Withholding forgiveness is the same as any other sin, and if we don't or won't let it go, we simply can't receive God's forgiveness. Not because God is unwilling, it's because we're unwilling. And that's the reason. It's because we're unwilling. And then finally in the, um, the prayer that we were taught to pray, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, the person who has been forgiven, and I'm sure I speak for many of you today, you know, the fact that we have been forgiven from our past, that we have tasted this newness of life, we want to remain free. And we're desperate not to slip back into our old ways. And many people seem to have a problem with this verse. They've said, well, why should we pray that the Lord will lead us not into temptation? When other scriptures, James chapter 1 verse 13 says quite clearly that God doesn't tempt us with evil. And the Bible seems to be saying two very, very different things there. I think that we need to be aware that probably a better translation for this verse would be, do not allow us, Lord, to be led into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. In other words, we're acknowledging that in our own strength we're no match for the evil one. And the good news is that we're not left in our own strength. James writes, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't just say resist the devil and he will flee from you, but first of all, submit to God. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, finally, be strong. Do you know what's coming? In ourselves? No. Uh, In our own willpower? No. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And we need to recognize that the spiritual battle and the victory is ours, not through anything we've done, but through the victory that we have in Christ. And therefore, when we pray this prayer, we declare our dependence upon God in every area of our lives. That's absolutely key. We're saying, Lord, we're nothing at all without you, but with you, Lord, we have all things. You will notice as well that the uh, end of that uh, prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6 misses the end that we traditionally use Uh, For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And the reason that that wasn't included in the New International Version text is because it wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts. It was in uh, a later edition. So maybe uh, someone in the church community added that at a later date. But that's not a bad thing. It's, It's still a great prayer to pray, and there's nothing wrong or evil or weird about that. But the original texts that were found contained only the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Well, we're done. Let me finish. This prayer that we've looked at, which we know is the Lord's Prayer, I believe is God's gift to us. I personally often reflect upon it and I I pray the words. And I think it's a good thing to do. You know, I quite enjoy praying the traditional version. Sometimes when I'm on my own, Sometimes when 
I'm with other Christians. We do it most weeks, actually, when we meet in our life group on a Thursday. I would encourage you the same. Reflect on it. Think about it. Don't just pray it by rote, you know, because you know it or recite it. Think about the words. Maybe another way would be just to take um, one petition at a time, one sentence at a time, and write out your own prayers, or just to focus on that for a moment or two, and then put that in your own words. Try to resist, as I say, praying it by rote. Be thoughtful, be reflective, and just allow these magnificent words to fill your hearts and your minds. And ask Father God to, to challenge you and to provoke you and for you to recognize how wonderful and awesome our God is.